John chapter 2, verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3 verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, or do not be amazed, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but... You do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Father, once again, we ask that you guide our thinking shape our, our thoughts, direct our thoughts to you. Use your word now, your inspired word. Bring it off the paper, off the page, and press it down into our hearts. Amen. Well, several things of great interest here in this passage. First, verse 23, the reason I started in chapter 2, verse 23, is that's really a transitional section there from the previous part. John is saying, just real briefly here, John is saying that uh, there are some who presented themselves as believing, but Jesus didn't really trust them. And then the, the classic illustration, the classic example is Nicodemus comes. And so there's a transition right there. Now there's two phrases in this passage which can cause us to stumble just a little bit if, we're, if we don't grasp onto it. So that's what I want to do as we begin, is just to look at those two phrases. Two phrases. If, you'll look, if your eyes just roll down to the bottom of that, that passage, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. 
Now that one, we can either read right over it or that could cause us to stumble just a little bit. So we need some context, some context. So remember, Nicodemus is, we would say, an Old Testament professor. But he's a, he's a scholar in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so Jesus is using the Hebrew Scriptures to communicate with Nicodemus because that's common ground that they can communicate on. So I invite you in your Bibles to turn to Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And just gives us some context. What would, what would Jesus be referring to in Numbers, ch chapter 21? And I'll read starting at verse 4. And we'll go down through verse 9. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 21, verse 9. Excuse me, verse 4 through verse 9. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Well, there's no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. A fiery serpent is a poisonous serpent, poisonous snake, poisonous serpent. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. They're going to their mediator, Moses. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So Jesus is using that teaching to teach Nicodemus something. But in that context, the people are complaining against God, against Moses. And God's not pleased with that. They have guilt in their heart, complaining against God and what God is providing to them. So God sends judgment. God's judging them in, in their guilt, in their dissatisfaction with God and what God is provi pro providing. So he sends these poisonous snakes and some get bit and some die. So this serpent Moses uh, puts up as uh, following the command of God and obedience to God, puts the serpent up. And if anyone looked at that, which means looking and recognizing, acknowledging their own guilt, and looking to that, there's nothing in themselves that they can do to save themselves. Nothing. They've been bit by a poisonous. All they can do is look yonder. They can look, they can look at that fiery serpent and be saved. Only what God could provide to them. That was the only way of deliverance. And so Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. This must happen. It's prophetic. It hadn't happened yet, but it will happen. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Just a word about the eternal life that the Gospel writer, Apostle John, will, sometimes we'll see eternal life. We'll see kingdom of God. 
Really, for the apostles to, to, to have eternal life is to be in the kingdom of God. And so those words, when we, we see kingdom of God, we can see eternal life, possession of e eternal life. But that's uh, what he's speaking of there in verse 14. Now, this other verse that really is interesting and can cause a great deal of difficulty and has been commented upon endlessly is verse 5 of chapter 3. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, reading from the ESV here, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, he can't have eternal life. Unless he's born of water and the, the Spirit. Now remember our context. Jesus is in dialogue with an Old Testament professor, not old to the Hebrews, but we would we call that today. Out of no disrespect, by the way, it's the Hebrew scriptures. Just helps us identify where we're at in the Bible. And he's talking to this expert, a ruler of the Jews. Uh, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus knows you know, scriptures, and so Jesus is dealing with him at that at that point. And he, he says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What's Jesus doing? What's he, what's he referring to there? Well, in some of your study Bibles, in the margin note or at the bottom, there's probably a reference there somewhere to Ezekiel 36. Again, this is caused no end of, of conversation and comment over the centuries, over the decades, on, on what Jesus is meaning here. And uh, among conservative evangelical scholars, the, the, the consensus is that he's pointing Nicodemus to Ezekiel 36, where the water and spirit come together. And so I invite you, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, to Ezekiel uh, 36, back in the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. But in Ezekiel 36, we read something very, very interesting. In fact, I'll just read that portion because it's so important for us. Ezekiel 36, starting at... Verse 22. Therefore, to the, therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. That's always good. God doesn't change. Immutable character of God. It's about His holy name, all of His actions. Which you have profaned among the nations to which you come, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, and through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries. Notice this, this, this theme, this idea of redemption. I will gather you from the nation, gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Here we go. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all of your idols. Notice that the idols don't, don't attach themselves externally. The idols attach themselves internally. 
So this cleansing that's going on is this internal cleansing. I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Again, internal and so internal working here that God is promising. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And it goes on down there to verse 32. But the point is that water and spirit come together in this passage. It's a, a concept that Nicodemus ought to have been familiar with. Water, spirit come together in the working, the one working of God. Water being symbolic of cleansing, cleansing us of something. It's not an outer cleansing of, of dirt. It's the inward cleansing that's being spoken of, the cleansing of sin, the, the, the separation that human beings have between ourselves and God is not something external, external dirt on our skin or our clothes. It's internal filth. And this cleansing uh, is spoken of. Also in Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 4. Actually, I'll just read that quickly. Again, verse 1, Isaiah 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, and I will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. That's a uh, name of respect for Israel, for uh, the nation of Israel. Verse 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Again, water and spirit coming together in a miraculous act of what God is doing in the, in the water. He says being poured out on a thirsty land it means more than, than just taking care of a drought situation. It's the internal drought that's going on and he'll pour water there and cleanse the, that, that person. So we have those two places where water and spirit come together and then in Titus chapter 3, we read something interesting also. When we get to the New Testament side, now Nicodemus wouldn't have access to Titus. But it helps us as Christians to see this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Okay, so what's going on? Jesus is pointing Nicodemus to these Old Testament passages. Water, whoever is born of water and the Spirit, God's miraculous work must take place in a person if they are to enter into the kingdom of God if they are in, if they are going to enter into eternal life, this must happen. Okay. Now let's step back. Think about our passage here just for a moment. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless, unless, unless 
one is born of water and the Spirit, cannot be enter the kingdom of God. We have to remember that with Nicodemus, this was incredibly radical. What? <laughs> A Pharisee? Someone of the stature of Nicodemus? What? I'm not qualified for the kingdom of heaven? What are you talking about, Rabbi? Unless one is born of water in the Spirit, cannot enter the kingdom of God. So that's shocking. When that, that born again language, just think of born. To be born. What's in, involved in that? And I know some of you in the room, ladies, know very clearly what is involved in that. Life. New life. Something radical has happened. Your, your husband probably fainted over here. And something radical is going on. Not, a, not an accident that Jesus is using the word born. Something radical. S something shocking. Something never to be experienced again, by the way. <clears throat> Can't be born again more than one time. Unless you think that we physically can be born again. Born. Born again. Now, that word again is interesting. S some interesting features here. That, that word in the original, that word can, can mean again, which is kind of carries an experiential context. To be born again, kind of horizontal, you might think. But it can also rightly be be translated into English to mean born from above. Both are correct. So, so we can just carry those two together. Just think of born again. Something experientially is happening to the person that, that they haven't... It's new. It's a radical thing. Something tremendous has happened to their life. But that thing that is happening, born from above, What I want you really to see in this passage is the great mercy, the great love, the great passion that Jesus has for you. That phrase there, born of water in the Spirit, again, has had no end to the comments over the centuries. You may have been familiar with some of them. Some of these. In fact, some of these are presented in your, your study Bibles. Some of you, being born of water and the Spirit, some of them think, well, that's natural birth and spiritual birth. The, the natural the birth, the amniotic fluid, the fluid, the water that's involved in the birthing process, and then the, there's the spiritual birth. But to me, in my reading of it, that's kind of stating the obvious, isn't it? I, you're going to tell Nicodemus highly intelligent, highly learned, respected man, that if anyone goes into the kingdom of God, they've got to be born. That, that doesn't... But, I mean, some people have very sincerely and vigorously defended that, but it doesn't really add up, at least the way to my thinking. Some have taken it to mean 
Christian baptism. To be, to be born of to be, to be born of water and the Spirit. Now remember, who's Jesus talking to? He's not talking to a Christian. He's talking to an expert in Old Testament law. Nicodemus knows nothing about Christian baptism. So why would Jesus be even referring to that in this dialogue? Okay, you have to be born, you have to undergo this Christian baptism, and you have to undergo this spiritual transformation to go to the kingdom of heaven. Well, that doesn't, to me, again, doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. How, how is the man supposed to understand that? Christian baptism hadn't even shown up on the scene yet. Some have taken it to mean, well, being born of water and the Spirit could be the water, a lot of dialogue, a lot of commentary on what the water means. The water could mean John the Baptist's baptism. Because surely Nicodemus had heard of John the Baptist. We looked at his life. So maybe that John, the baptism of John the Baptist in the, the, the baptism of repentance, that this baptism needed to take place, step one, this, this work of the Spirit, step two, needed to take place. Some of that, well, maybe that's what's at play. Well, perhaps, but, that, that's throwing a lot on Nicodemus that he really understood and was on board with what John the Baptist was doing. So that doesn't seem quite to, to add up either. Now, the, the biblical scholar D.A. Carson has a very extensive and detailed analysis of this passage. And he makes some points that I think are, are very helpful for us to, to consider. And I just ask you to look at the passage with me. Some things that make sense to me. Verse 3. Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born again, That, that's a single event. If you go down to verse 5, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that seems like two events. It seems like it. Then you just go, go down to verse 6. That which is born of the Spirit. There's no mention of water there. Born of the Spirit. Single event. Uh, verse 7. Don't marvel that I told you you must be born again. Single event. No water's mentioned. And then in verse 8. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Notice, notice how in verse 5, born of water and the Spirit, but verse 8 concludes born of the Spirit. So in one verse, out of each of those references, is it of water and the Spirit. Presenting itself as two things in our minds. 
But that doesn't match with the other references that Jesus is making here. Born again. Born of the Spirit. Born again. This single reference. And, and there's a couple of other technical language issues that he references also. But it leads me to agree that this is a single event. This is a single event and not two events taking place. Not a baptism with water and a baptism of the Spirit, which, which really addresses the issue of baptismal regeneration. You may have heard that phrase before. Baptismal regeneration. That a person must be baptized and God works in that water to regenerate a person's heart. Regen regenerate a person through that, that water. It doesn't seem that that's to me, that that's what's being spoken of here. That it's a single event. And the baptism, you must be baptized. Nicodemus, you're the Old Testament professor. Hmm, let's see here. What would you be thinking of? You, you probably know Ezekiel. Uh, you probably know Isaiah, born of water and the Spirit. You should know because you're the teacher of Israel, not a teacher, the teacher of Israel. You should know that that Spirit coming, water and the Spirit coming together, something powerful that God is going to do with His people is going to cleanse them and give them a new heart. You should know that. So, some time taken on these passages because they can really, really cause quite a concern, particularly with how the water is being dealt with and whether it actually and truly teaches baptismal regeneration. Now, the baptism is not important. That's not the point. Is Christian baptism being spoken of here? And to my mind, it is not. Not. So, he comes during the Passover feast, verse 23, in the Passover feast, that week-long feast, beginning with Passover, then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And, and many believed in his name, and when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Now, that word also is very interesting. It's the same in the original. And here we read that many believed in his name, but he did not entrust himself to them. So that's helping us recognize that Jesus, yes, yeah, some people say they believe, but he does not, he's not really trusting everyone who says that they believe. If we said, for example, have you believed in Jesus? We could use the word trust, entrust. Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus? The idea is that Jesus isn't necessarily entrusting himself. He's not receiving at face value the declaration that other people are saying about their belief. I believe in you, Jesus. And the problem is there that they're believing in his signs, that he, he is doing something miraculous, something that really is, is, is shocking, really moving. And the people are believing and they're trusting in the, the signs, yeah, we believe in you. But notice the omniscience that's spoken of here in verse 25. No one needed to bear witness about man before, before he himself knew what was in man. That's omniscience. God, Jesus knows only God, by the way, can have that kind of knowledge. John is communicating here a double layer kind of a thing. He, he's a, kind of a two-meaning thing in a good way. 
but the omniscience of Jesus. Jesus is God because only God can do that. But Jesus isn't really taking what people are saying at, at face value. The other thing that we see right off at the beginning of the passage here is really something very shocking, would have been shocking to Nicodemus, shocking today. Again, remember who this man is, who this Nicodemus is. Well, John helps us to understand it. There's a man of the Pharisees. They were very meticulous about their faith. Those Pharisees say all the bad things we, we sometimes think of or say about the Pharisees and their legalism and all of that. They were very meticulous about their very zealous for the details of the law of Moses and the traditions of their elders. They were very uh, zealous about that. His name is Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews, meaning that he sits on the Sanhedrin, 70 plus one, 70 people on this council that are a ruling body for Israel plus the high priest. So he's there. He's somebody that knows something and is respected. He's a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Rabbi, we know. So we, Nicodemus apparently has several that are they're inquiring about Jesus. He's, who is this guy? Who is this one that's overturning tables in the temple? And we're hearing about all of these miracles going on out there. Who is he? What is going on? Now, Nicodemus, you're respected. You're very knowledgeable. You're our candidate. You go talk to him. One of us needs to go talk to this. Talk to this man. Who are you? So this Nicodemus is highly respected. And so he comes. We know that you are a teacher. Come from God. Notice this. Nicodemus and, and his clan. His, his, his cohort. We know that you are a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do. Unless God is with him. <laughs> Unless God is with him. Now here's what's shocking about that statement. Almost every word in the Gospel of John, if you haven't seen it so far, is shocking. We have seen some facts. We have seen some of your teaching and some of your action, and we agree. We've seen the facts. Hear me? We've seen the facts, and we agree that you cannot do that and God not be with you. And Jesus tells him, you need to be born again. This is where the Gospel of John blows our thinking away in this country and in every other country I've ever been in. We think that if we have the facts and if we agree with the facts, why, we're in the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus is our prime biblical example. You can know the facts. You can be in agreement with the facts and still not be born again. And Jesus says that you have to be, you and I must, 
word must is used, must be born again. And this is shocking to Nicodemus, and it's shocking to people today, and it has been shocking to people all through the centuries, because I believe the creed. I believe what they told me I needed to believe. I believe the facts. I believe that he really lived. I believe, I, I believe that he died on the cross. I believe these things. I believe he was a great teacher. These things, I believe it. I'm in agreement. I'm in agreement. What's the problem? I'm in agreement. Well, maybe you haven't been born again. Because Jesus, not the preacher, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And he's coming in here. Jesus is coming in and says, Rabbi, respect. Rabbi, we know, we've seen you, that you're a teacher come from God, and you cannot do this. You cannot teach this way. You cannot do these signs and God not be with him. And God's not like anybody else. He's not with anybody else around here like He is with you. But Jesus comes along and says, something else has got to take place. So all of these things, they're not bad. Professional position, religious inquiry, commitment to certain religious codes. They may be bad. They may not be bad. The point is, you have to be born again. Now, I happen to be speaking to a group of people in this room today. Does that not particularly disrupting to you to hear something like that? But it is mighty disrupting to most of the world's population. To most of the population in California. To most of the religious population in the United States of America. It's disturbing. <laughs> well, uh, are you one of those born-agains? You ever been asked that? I have. You, are you one of those born-agains? Look down the nose at like, yeah, you're a weirdo. You're one of those born-agains? We know better than that. It's highly disturbing to many, many hundreds of thousands of people in our country. And what I'm saying is Jesus Christ in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, not the church doctrinal statement, not the pastor, not some sort of counsel. The Apostle John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you must be born again. And now that's going to create a crisis event for you and for anyone else that's listening that doesn't think that they're born again because Jesus says it has to happen. Well, so there's this, this argument that really flows in this passage. I want you to see this. I want you to understand the, the argument. Argument in a, in a good sense of the word. It's not that Nicodemus and, and Jesus are hating one another and arguing that way and belittling one another. But there's, there's this flow. And the issue that every human being, Nicodemus, the Sanhedrin, you, me, Every human being that has ever walked on this planet has this problem, this central problem, this ultimate lack, and that's a residency problem. Where are you? Where do you? Where is your residence? 
What residency do you claim? Do you claim the kingdom of God? Do you claim the kingdom of Jesus? The kingdom of God is the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus is the king. What kingdom are you in? And whose kingdom are you submitting to? I'm talking in, in your living. Not in an instance here or instance here. What kingdom are you submitting to? And that's a residency problem. Far beyond all of the other problems that are in the world. There are plenty. We all know that. There are plenty of the, those problems. This problem is a problem every human being faces. Where do you take up your residency? Is it with Jesus Christ? And so there's this universal demand. And that demand is that there needs to be some spiritual cleansing. There needs to be some forgiveness. This universal demand, there needs to be some water in the Spirit. What is flesh is flesh. What is spirit is spirit. Speaking about spiritual things here. There needs to be some spiritual cleansing. There needs to be some new life that's given in, to enable a person to live for Messiah. Jesus Christ. Sometimes we say Jesus, and I do a lot. I say Jesus, but it doesn't carry the freight that maybe we ought to start saying. This is the Messiah that we're talking about. Christ in Greek. Messiah. Are you passionate? Are you born again with new life that orients you to the Messiah? Not just a teacher that walked around 2,000 years. The Messiah. God's or, or anointed one. There's the word. The anointed one. Where's our residency? God demands that some cleansing goes on. And we have this universal human crisis and that is the total inability. Catch this now. Everyone within listening of my, my voice, if I've never remembered for anything else other than this, you and I have the total inability to make that happen. Amen. That's what makes the Gospels so radical. That's what makes Jesus so radical. The Apostle Paul so radical. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. Human beings, wherever you're from, have the absolute inability to make any of this happen. Any kind of a cleansing, any kind of a, a new heart take place. And that's a crisis situation when the Lord Jesus, when God Himself says that some cleansing needs to take place. <laughs> some, some new heart needs to take place. That's a crisis when I can't do anything about it. It doesn't matter how good I am. It doesn't matter how, how uh, intellectual I am, Nicodemus. It doesn't matter the position that I have with the 70 others plus one, Nicodemus. It doesn't matter any of that. We have the total inability. Did you hear me? Do I need to repeat it? Why the emphasis? Why is the pastor so wound up? 
about this. First, it's true. Second off, it's a worship issue. You cannot rightly worship God if you do not understand you have no ability whatsoever in your life. Nothing in you that would qualify you to God. So the only reason that you're worshiping God is because God has intervened in your life. He's done something miraculously in your life. Water and Spirit has come into your life. Get on your face and worship God. Get on our face and worship God. It's a worship passage, not merely doctrinal. It surely is that. You won't have to think very long about that and you'll want to worship God. You'll want to sing something to God. You'll want to talk to God, pray. You'll want to read His Scriptures. You'll want to be around His people to one extent or another in all of those. But you will want that when you realize you can do nothing I could do nothing. You could do nothing, religious man. God did it for you. And that leads us to God's gracious intervention and divine enablement. And the Apostle John is going to get real clear about that in a few verses, in a few chapters. He's going to get real clear about divine enablement and God's intervention in our life. Hallelujah! He's intervened in some people's lives in this country as we celebrate this day. He's intervened and your influence on other people's lives is only for the sake of Christ. Everybody has influence to one extent or another. But for the goodness of Christ, the only reason that you have any influence to the good for the sake of God is because God intervened. I want you to see the love, mercy, compassion of God, the mercy of God. We have too many people running around calling themselves Christians. They think they did it themselves. They're entitled to the kingdom of heaven. They're entitled to eternal life. Have not you experienced this? They're entitled to it. You and I are entitled to nothing. We're sinners. So, we have that argument that continues to flow through Scripture, but especially helping us to see what is happening in this passage. So every human being needs, technical word, regeneration. It's good for us to know these words. Regeneration and the ability to favorably respond to the Messiah. We need some change. We need some inner change. I included in your listening guide statement uh, a reference to Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, regeneration, being born again, is a secret act of God. 
in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. In the work of regeneration, we play no active role at all. We are entirely passive in regeneration. And this is what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. Born, and I emphasize, I mentioned that earlier, born again or from above. That's an act, that's a work of God. In the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, regeneration or the new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through the conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll drill down on that when we get to John 3.16. We'll drill down a little bit more on what it means to believe. But it's an act of God's grace. We see in the New Testament more clearly that God works through His Word. His Word being preached, whether that's in, a, in, a, in your home or in a coffee shop or wherever that might be, on a platform. He works through His Word to change hearts. Regeneration. So to be born again means to be something is generated, birthed, rebirthed, rebirthed. So every human being has that need and we have, to, we have to have that ability to favorably respond to the Messiah. I'm looking at people here who have favorably re responded to the Messiah. Who gets the glory? God gets the glory the way it's supposed to be. God gets the glory because you have responded to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You've responded in passion in your heart, in repentance of your sin, in a grieving over your sin, and God has invited you into His kingdom. Absolutely opposite what we as human creatures really and actually want in our life. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Oh, excuse me, I, I misread that. You were not feeling well in your trespasses and sins. You were, you were feeling ill in your trespasses. You were dead. You were a corpse is what that means. What do corpses do? Last time I checked, nothing. In the spiritual sense, dead, being a corpse, doing nothing. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Who wants to hear that today? Like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, when we were corpses, when we had no ability in ourselves, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Sing the song again. Victory in Jesus. Yes, a dead corpse rose. Oh, that's Ezekiel 37. Dry bones. Ring a, ring a bell. 
the dry bones, Ezekiel talks about, God breathing life into what was dead and then changing that person so they're passionate for the Messiah and then that leaks out into all sorts of positive ways in our life and it can also leak out to such an extent persecution comes, hallelujah, great, wonderful, that it comes for the sake of Jesus. Not for the sake of some other thing, but persecution, wonder at the grace of God. So this, this regenerative grace is spoken of often in the scriptures, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this regenerative grace is a sovereign act of God and it's beyond all processes, all formulas, and all manipulation. That's what we see with Nicodemus. He's coming to, with some inquiry, but he is as skilled in the word, word in his professional position. He's respected. This, this regenerative grace this being born again, being born from above, is beyond any of that. Something that happens to a person's life and they had nothing to contribute to it at all. Again, I say hallelujah. Does it make anybody love God more? It's a worship passage. So this regeneration leads to a whole life response, a surrendered response. Whole life, not just some kind of spiritual thing inside, but my outside doesn't change. Is that what the picture of born brings to your mind? Paul would say it like this, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. What does that mean? It means that they've been born again. Something has changed in them. Then people want to go along and drag that person down through the mud. Well, you're not really like that. We knew how you really were. We know how that is. Drag them down, push them down, tell them what's there. not really true in their life. It's a whole life surrendered response to God. And the New Testament helps us to see this. But in the words themselves, as I've tried to get you to see today, born, born, something new happens. Something radical happens. Something happens that causes some men to faint. So it happens to some, in some situation, I don't know about all, but in some situation it causes ladies to cry out. Something different happens radically different. That's a whole life coming out into this world. Not a partial life. The words aren't accidental. Purposeful. Which all of this should give us a sense of greater worship for God and a great sense of hope no matter where you've been, no matter what struggles that you may be going through, maybe you see, you see, well, my life, true, 
I, I, I can see that I'm not measuring where God wants me to be. But we don't just shrug and turn the other way. We have hope and we have confidence in God that when we receive His born from above grace, that He's empowering us, enabling us to break through and go in a kind of a new direction and just in the way we think and the way we speak and the way we live. It's a wonderful teaching that we find in John 3. John, first John, we'll let, we'll let the, the gospel writer, we'll let John himself speak for himself as we wrap up today. First John, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. First John, chapter 3, verse 4 through 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Not speaking of perfection, but habitual, unrepentant sin. Why? Because something radically new has happened to that life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. You may be sure that anyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Again, not in perfection, not in perfection righteousness, but a growing sense and a desire and a hunger for more righteous in our, righteousness in our own life. 1 John chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been Born of God, overcomes the world. We won't spend time there today, but that is a radical statement. You want to overcome some of what you see in the world today? Your Messiah enables you to overcome and actually from the depths of your soul victory in Jesus. Victory over the darkness of this world. All for the praise and all for the glory of God Almighty. Let's pray.